This is our third week looking at the Book of Lamentations. You've seen it's a collection of five poems. And these poems are very tightly connected together in various ways. And they are very carefully constructed as well. The first two poems each had 22 verses, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The third poem, the central poem of the five, has 66 verses, three for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But each verse is a third shorter than the verses in the first two poems. That means, although the third poem has three times as many verses as the first two, its overall length is just about the same, because the verses are shorter. And then the last two poems in the book each have 22 verses again. And what that means is, this third poem is given special emphasis in the book. The book has been carefully designed so that this third chapter is highlighted. So we can be sure what this chapter has to say has central significance in the book. So let's just take a moment to remind ourselves what the book of Lamentations is about. These five poems are about the ruined city of Jerusalem. They're about the experience of devastation when the Babylonians sacked the city, wrecked the place, and carried many of the people away then into exile in Babylon. These poems are about that devastation and its aftermath. They are laments for what has been lost and for the suffering that still goes on in the ruined city. And these poems revolve around God and his involvement in the devastation. In chapter 1, Jerusalem herself was very clear. The Lord himself brought about the devastation of the city. And he was in the right to do it. He was righteous in what he did because Jerusalem had rebelled against his commands. Not just in a few isolated instances. Jerusalem herself said, I have been most rebellious. In fact, the city's rebellion had gone on for generations. So chapter 1 established the righteousness of what God brought on Jerusalem through the Babylonians. Chapter 2, which we looked at last week, focused on the strangeness of what God brought about. The destruction God brought on Jerusalem was an undoing of the work God had done over centuries to build Jerusalem up. It was God's own good work that was torn down. And when we looked at chapter 2, we saw that the Lord's anger, His outpouring of wrath in Jerusalem, was what the Bible elsewhere calls His strange work and His alien task. In other words, God's anger is right and necessary because of sin, but it is not His normal disposition. He is not by nature an angry God. His normal disposition and nature were seen in his loving work to choose Israel and rescue her from Egypt and give her a gift of the land of Canaan and build her up over generations. The undoing of all that showed the strangeness of God's anger. And now in this third poem, the center of the book focuses on the greatness of his love. 
You'll find it on page 826 in the Green Church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles 1281. And as we read this third chapter, you'll notice that the perspective of the poem has changed. In the first two poems, the poet was observing Jerusalem. He was reporting the words and the emotions of Jerusalem and some of his response to what he saw. But now, the poet speaks about his own personal experience. So look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read to the end of this chapter. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering the bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. 
Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all the prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. Those who were my enemies without cause hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Lord, you have heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long, Look at them. Sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. This is God's word. And what is striking, first of all, in this poem is the announcement in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. The writer of Lamentations is not a disinterested observer. He's more than even a sympathetic observer of Jerusalem's devastation. He has experienced that devastation himself. He has been personally afflicted by the rod of God's wrath that fell in Jerusalem. The first part of this poem shows us a believer's personal experience. And that experience is an experience of bitter darkness and crushed hope. We're calling him a believer, and he is, but he's experiencing estrangement from God. The NIV uses the name Lord in verse 1 to clarify who the poet is talking about. But in the original text, it just says, I've seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. 
The name Lord doesn't actually appear until verse 18 in this poem. The first 17 verses refer constantly to God, but not by name, never by name. They refer to God as He. God's very active in this man's life, but He seems like a stranger, an enemy, in fact. So using the personal name Lord doesn't seem appropriate. Now, we're not going to pause over each description in these opening verses, but what we have, have here is as dark as it gets in the Old Testament, really. There are a few other places where things are described as darkly and bleakly as this, but only a few. This is as dark as it gets. And verses 2 and 3 set the tone. It says, He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, He has turned His hand against me again and again all day long. What's behind this is the poet's experience of being in the city of Jerusalem when it was under siege by the Babylonians and then being in the ruined city that was left behind by the Babylonians. But it's all described as if he personally was under siege by the Lord and being personally harassed by the Lord. This man has seen affliction inside and out. His circumstances are dark and bitter, his body is suffering, and his heart and soul are also afflicted by it all. How could they not be? Look at verse 7. Speaking about the Lord, he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Even the poet's prayers seem to be unwelcome to the Lord and unheard by the Lord. And verses 15 to 18 sum it up. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. Gall is a bitter drink, and here it symbolizes bitter experience. He's given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I hope from the Lord. Finally, the poet uses the Lord's name. And he uses it with a kind of finality. He has lived, he had lived with his hope in the Lord, but now he's come to the end of his hope in the Lord. Verse 18 has a kind of, that's the end of that. Feel to it. The Lord has broken him. The Lord has shut him out. And there seems to be one more twist to this that makes it all so much harder to bear. The poet makes no mention of sin on his own part. That stands out because the first two chapters of this book have been very open about Jerusalem's sin, her devotion to other lovers, looking for rest and security in foreign nations and false gods. That was the general situation. But we know among that general forsaking of the Lord, there were faithful believers at this time. There were men and women who did not run after false gods. They remained true to the Lord. But that personal faithfulness did not exempt those men and women from the devastation that fell in Jerusalem. 
They didn't join in the sin. But when the Babylonians came, those faithful believers experienced exactly the same ruin as everybody else did. It seems this poet is one of those faithful believers. And that makes the whole experience all the darker, makes it all the more bitter for him. He had hoped in the Lord, but he got the Lord's anger along with everybody else. Or at least he got caught up in the effects of the Lord's anger along with everyone else. And there are faithful believers today who have a similar experience. They have not joined the crowd in rebelling against the Lord and forsaking his word. They have put their hope in him. And yet their experience has been one of bitter darkness and crushed hope. It seems they've been caught up in the Lord's anger against this world. It seems the Lord has rejected them along with everyone else. Maybe you're in that position. Maybe you feel that way. Does our poet have anything for you here besides commiserations? Yes, he does. Because he's not finished yet telling us about his personal experience. Look at verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He can't avoid remembering the bitter darkness. In fact, he is still enduring it. He's up to his neck in it presently. Of course, he well remembers it, and his soul is downcast because of it. But the poet makes a conscious decision to bring something else to mind. Literally, verse 21 says, this I will recall to my heart. So this is not just an intellectual recollection. He's involving his heart in this. He is bringing this recollection to his downcast soul. He's making a deliberate decision to focus on this, and it renews his hope. So what is it that he calls to mind? Verse 22 because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In verse 22, behind the words great love, there's just one Hebrew word. We could also translate it as faithful love or steadfast love. What we're talking about here is enduring love, love that will not let us go. How do we know the Lord's love is this kind of love? We know it because the Lord himself has told us so. He has shown us so. Here's how he described himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love 
and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That passage goes on to speak about the Lord's willingness to punish the guilty. And it's important to realize the Lord spoke these words in the aftermath of a pretty spectacular sin. The Israelites, at this point freshly delivered from slavery in Egypt, made themselves a golden calf, and they had a sex party while they worshipped their stupid calf. And the Lord was angry, as he always is in the face of sin. His wrath fell on Israel that day. We're told about 3,000 Israelites died. The Lord punished the guilty. And he also chose that time to make this incredible revelation of his character. The one who punishes sin is abounding in love and faithfulness. The God who is angry at sin is not an angry God. He is the compassionate and gracious God. And he showed that by renewing his covenant with his people after the golden calf incident. And here in Lamentations 3, maybe 900 years after that revelation of God's character, our poet is living in the aftermath of yet more spectacular sin from Israel. And he has seen God's judgment fall again, as it did after the golden calf. And in the midst of his own bitter darkness and crushed hope, he recalls to his heart the truth of who the Lord is. He is the Lord of great love. Enduring love that will not let his people go. And look at the evidence our poet finds to prove the Lord's great love in his own situation. In verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. We're still here. Still able to call his great love to mind. Now that might not seem like much to us. It might seem like a pretty small chink of light. But notice it leads to a new outlook. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. New every morning means they are renewed every morning. Even in the midst of bitter darkness, the poet is beginning to see, because of the Lord's great love, I've not sunk under the weight of my circumstances. I'm still here. As dark as it's been, as bitter as it's been, I'm still here. And each day... Every morning, the Lord is renewing his great love to me. He's giving me the resources to cope with another new day. This morning, Steve said that each day is a brand new day for us as God's people. And here it is as well. The poet says, the Lord's compassions have not failed me. His faithfulness to me is great. Each day is a new day of his faithfulness. He says, I've not received what I hoped from the Lord. That doesn't mean I have no reason to hope in him. 
I know his character. It's the same as it's always been when I think about it. And as I focus on that truth, he says, I'm beginning to recognize, actually, daily evidences of his great love to me. I'm noticing that, yes, truly his compassions never fail. His faithfulness is great. When I forgot the Lord's character, and just looked at my circumstances, I began to believe that he was against me, that he was mangling me and trampling me. But as I recall to my heart the truth of his great love, I have hope again. So, verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The circumstances haven't changed, but our poet knows to have the Lord is enough. Long before this, when the land of Canaan was being divided up among the Israelites, each tribe and within each tribe, each family, were given their portion of the land. But here the poet realizes, I have the portion I really need. The land is in ruins. In that sense, there's not much for me to build a life on. In that sense, I have no portion left in these ruins. But I have the Lord as my portion. I can build my life on Him and His great faithfulness. I will wait for Him. It's actually the same word that was translated hope back in verse 21. I will hope in him. And this hoping does involve waiting. The poet lives among the ruins. He's going to have to wait and see what God will do. But now he can look forward hopefully. So this believer's experience does not end in bitter darkness and crushed hope. He can testify to reborn hope through focusing on the proven character of God. And it turns out the reason he has shared all this with us is to call us to the same reborn hope. The next verses give us a believer's wise counsel. Verses 25 and 26 invite us to seek God and wait patiently for His goodness. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. To seek God is to go after Him. It's to bring your cares to Him. Don't view him as a harsh master who's liable to explode if you ask for his help. He's not like that. And seeking God involves listening carefully to his word. There's no doubt the writer of Lamentations has been doing that himself. He didn't dream up the idea of God's loving character. He found it revealed in Scripture through the words and the deeds of God in the book of Exodus as we've seen. John Flavel said, one word of God can do more than 10,000 words of man to relieve a distressed soul. One word of God can do more than 10,000 words of man to relieve a distressed soul. 
That's because God reveals himself in Scripture. And because he's the God of great love, that is who we meet in Scripture. The God of great love, whose anger is his strange work, not his normal work. His word will teach us to hope in him and wait quietly for his salvation. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean wait silently. This poet is not silent, but he has quietened his heart. He has calmed his heart by focusing on God's goodness. That quietness of heart is not like a switch that we can just flick on. It comes as we take time to recall God's character to our heart. Then we can learn to wait quietly for what he will do. What does verse 27 mean when it says, it is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young? Well, early in this book, we heard about the yoke of suffering and ruin Jerusalem has experienced because of her sin. Back in chapter 1, Jerusalem said, My sins have been bound into a yoke, and by the Lord's hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck. As a consequence of her sin, Jerusalem has a heavy burden to bear, a yoke. And here, I think what's being said is, it is good for every single one of us to learn about that early in our lives. To face the reality for ourselves that sin brings heavy, heavy burdens. The sooner we all learn that, the better. Why? Because the sooner we sense the burden sin brings, the sooner we will learn to seek God. And look how quickly the encouragement to do that comes again from our poet in verse 31. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. In this context, that means no one who seeks him is cast off by him forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Literally, he does not from his heart bring affliction or grief to anyone. We're being reminded again, the Lord's heart is a heart of love. He is angry at sin. He does justly and righteously bring judgment on those who persist in sin. But that is his strange work, his alien task. That's why through the prophet Ezekiel, God says this to rebellious Israel. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? The Lord does not from his heart bring affliction or grief to anyone. And so at this point, our poet is calling those around him to face the fact of their sin and turn from it. We've noticed he's one of the faithful few who haven't participated in the nation's rebellion against God. 
but the majority of the people have. And so for them, seeking God has to involve repentance. Owning up to sin and seeking his mercy. You can see that if you look down to verse 39. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? In other words, let's admit this calamity of Jerusalem's fall, it wasn't an unfortunate accident. It was punishment for sin. Verse 40, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you've not forgiven. You've covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You've covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. He says, own up to sin. We've sinned and rebelled. Seek God's mercy. As we repent, Lord, will you hear our prayer? Will you forgive? Those prayers can be prayed with great hope because of the Lord's great love. Because he's a God of compassion. Prayers of confession and repentance can be prayed with great hope, but they do have to be prayed. The Bible does not tell us it's God's job to forgive us, no matter what. It does not tell us he will forgive everyone in the end, whether they seek his forgiveness or not. No, those who do not turn from their evil ways will not live. They will die eternally, experiencing his wrath eternally. God is a God of love. He is also a righteous, holy God. And his righteousness and holiness demand that in the face of defiant, unrepented sin, the Lord performs his strange work an alien task. He pours out wrath. Forgiveness is available, and to receive it, you and I and those around us must own up to sin and seek God's mercy. But finally, and more briefly, there's one more turn taken in this poem. Our poet has shared his personal experience, he has given wise counsel. And now, his realization of the Lord's great love prompts him to pray for justice. It is right that Jerusalem owns up to her sin and seeks God's mercy. And it's also true that the Babylonian oppressors are acting unjustly. Yes, they've been God's instruments in bringing about the fall of Jerusalem, but they're ruthlessly and needlessly continuing to oppress Jerusalem at this point. The fact that Jerusalem has sinned to repent of, that doesn't take away the fact that others are sinning against Jerusalem. Look how the poet turns to that in verse 48. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul 
because of all the women of my city. Why does he mention the women of Jerusalem specifically? Well, simply because at this time and in this culture, women generally did not fight in wars. And they were generally not involved in making military decisions either. And yet, the women tended to suffer the most when a city fell to invaders. They suffered all sorts of horrible abuse, as they often do in warfare today. We know that from the current war in Ukraine. It was the women who lost their husbands and sons in war. And in the case of Jerusalem, women who didn't lose their sons in the fighting lost them to captivity and exile in Babylon. It's no wonder our poet says the situation of the women in Jerusalem brings grief to his soul. And he brings his grief to God. He knows the God of great love cares about what's going on. And not just the horrible circumstances of the women. God cares about the poet's own circumstances too. In verses 52 to 58, he mentions a situation in the past that the Lord had delivered him from. A pit that he was in. It might have been a literal pit, like the one Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into. It's very possible. Or it could be the circumstances felt like a pit to him. Either way, he says, the Lord at that time in the past heard his plea and delivered him. And now in the final verses, the poet prays for a similar deliverance again in the present. From this new pit he's in. But as we look at these last verses, we might be shocked by the way he prays about it. Look down to verse 59. Lord, you've seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You've seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Lord, you've heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them, sitting or standing. They mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. How does this fit with what's gone before? Does it fit? Well, yes, it does. By all accounts, the Babylonians did evil and terrible things. And as our poet calls God to bring justice on them for their evil, he's not praying with any pride. We've seen in this poem, in the earlier poems, he knows ultimately the Lord is behind the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has sinned. She can't complain about God's judgment on her sin. And the poet knows as a faithful follower of the Lord, his own priority has to be to trust the Lord's great love, whatever the circumstances. He said all of that. And at the same time, waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord does not mean waiting silently. The Lord cares. He's a God of great mercy and compassion. He cares about the wrongs done to us. 
And so, knowing that, we bring evil men and their evil deeds before him in our prayers. We ask him to bring justice. One writer says, there's more sin to be dealt with than just Jerusalem's. And this man is confident that God will not rest until all wrongs have been righted. This too is part of the greatness of God's love. We can trust him to take evil seriously. We can trust him to put right what is wrong. Now, he may not always do that in the way we ask or expect him to. Sometimes he may bring our enemies to repentance. We have to be willing for him to bring evil to an end that way. Because if we are Christians, isn't that how he dealt with our sin and evil? We deserved his anger and his curse. We deserve to be destroyed, but he poured that destruction not on us, but on his son Jesus. And he did it so we could escape what we deserve and receive what we don't deserve. A welcome from God. And so yes, when you and I see wrong, where we experience wrong, let's ask God to bring justice. Let's ask him to put wrongs right. And let's be willing for him to do that by bringing sinners to repentance. So that Jesus pays for their sin. Jesus is able to say more truly than anyone else, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. Those were the opening words of this poem. And Jesus can say those words more truly than anyone else. He had no sin of his own to be punished for. He suffered as a result of our sin. But in his bitter suffering under the rod of his father's wrath, Jesus trusted the goodness of his father. He waited quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And after three days... He was raised up by his faithful father. And today, because of Jesus, you and I can entrust our lives to that same faithful father in heaven. Bring your sin to him. Bring your bitter darkness to him. Your crushed hope. Bring to him the injustice that you're facing at the moment. Bring it all and call to mind his great love and compassion. And then wait patiently for his goodness. We're going to sing a final song that is uh, taken from this passage. The words come from Lamentations 3, and they help us call to mind the character of our God. Great is thy faithfulness.
His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Amen.